Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company at my panel, we've got the rapper and podcaster Zuby and the political consultant Emma Burnell. Good evening to both of you. And you know the drill on Jubes and Curb by now, don't you? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is my email. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Right, let's get back to business then, shall we? The business of politics. Our new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, is in New York, focusing on Ukraine and trade. It's the first time as PM for her on the world stage. And our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, is there. Darren, good evening to you. How is Liz Truss being received? Hello, Michelle. Well, really interesting, isn't it? Because in many ways, she's known to a lot of these leaders. She has been foreign secretary for the last couple of years, but clearly being prime minister has meant that she's kind of stepped up, if you like. She's now an equivalent to people like Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who she's been meeting this afternoon. In fact, actually, he has just left here in the last couple of minutes. He's holding a, a mini press conference with some French uh, press. But as I say, he spoke to the prime minister a little earlier on. We're going to read out from number 10, at which they talked about how they needed to back Ukraine uh, to the hilt, uh, the importance of uh, being a Ukrainian friend and ally, staying the course, supporting the military, economic and political action that is necessary to ensure that Ukraine wins that war. Also interesting, Michelle, they said the leaders agreed to enhance UK-French cooperation on energy to reduce the volatility of the market and cut costs for households. And it is really Ukraine in its many guises that's dominating this UN summit. It is something that is held every year. Clearly, this is the first time Liz Truss has been here as Prime Minister. She'll be making a speech tomorrow night. But before that, she's meeting a whole range of people, including Ursula von der Leyen from the EU Commission in the next couple of hours. Also, the Spanish Prime Minister, the Lithuanian President, and Joe Biden, the US President, uh, tomorrow. And it's not just that military support, which, as you rightly said at the top of the programme, the UK has recommitted itself to, but also talk about food security, trying to get the food out of Ukraine still, out of that port in Odessa, trying to ramp up the, the amount of grain that's been dispatched from there, and also trying to tackle this cost of living crisis that's not just affecting the UK, but also lots of Western Europe uh, too. I'm sure Brexit will come up. The Northern Ireland Protocol is still an issue there. But ultimately, actually, lots of the questions that the Prime Minister's faced since arriving in New York has been about the domestic situation at home. Because frankly, even though she became Prime Minister two weeks ago, we've not really all had a chance to ask her about that. And she's clear that this is a government that's going to cut taxes, that may well be unpopular in doing so, notably raising that limit on bankers' bonuses. But she says she's determined to go ahead, even if it means voters don't like her because she thinks it's the best course of action to try and regrow the British economy. It's going to be a key moment tomorrow night on the world stage, but a key moment domestically on Friday when we have that mini budget and we're expecting those massive tax cuts to be announced. 
Sarah McCaffrey, thanks for that. Um, Emma Bernal, it does feel, I mean, we've spoken uh, over the last few days, the focus has been on the uh, very sad passing of our Queen. Um, but there's just been so much change in this country now. We've got a new king at the same time. We've got this new political leader in Liz Truss. Um, and we just had so many interruptions to politics at a time where, you know, what we really need is, is not interruption, but head down focus. So I'm wondering tonight, um, what should that focus look like? What should the priority areas be? It feels to me like we're turning a page, new chapter. Well, what should be in it? Well, I mean, the number one, uh, number one to 10, really, things on Liz Truss's to-do list has to be tackling the cost of living crisis. Um, that is what everybody is going to be wondering about. And we had, um, as you know, um, she was literally giving um, some of the detail of her initial package when that news went round that the Queen was unwell um, and that brought everything to a standstill in Parliament. Um, so I think we know from a domestic perspective what um, we as householders will be getting, but business are feeling very, very insecure. They've been told they'll get some sense of security for the next six months, but they don't have detail on that. Six months isn't really enough time for most businesses to plan ahead. Um, so there does need to be significant intervention, both in terms of business um, and just security and understanding of where we're going. We also don't know how that's playing plan to be paid for, where the money for this package, because it is enormous. It's yeah, it's, it's COVID plus plus um, in terms of the cost of it, how that's going to be managed. So what we'll need to see from Liz Truss's government over the next few weeks um, around the party conferences and probably when they're at their party conference from the conference floor, I imagine, will be answers on not just what her long term, uh, slightly vague goals about growth are, but the difference she's going to make to my life between now and Christmas. Indeed. Uh, Zuby, where do you stand on it? Um, my gut feeling from what was just said there is it sounds like potentially more policies that are going to be creating more inflation, which we've already been having for the past few years. And so much of these issues have been caused by too much government intervention, mm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, people have nicely forgotten that the, over the past two and a half years with all of the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the stopping of businesses and so on, that has shattered the economy. Yeah, I've and not forgotten going that. To be, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pain to come from that. So I have a natural apprehension about more and more government intervention and more and more money printing because that's how you get inflation. Um, I think in terms of concerns, people should absolutely be concerned about the economy. They should have been for the whole past several years. And I think, you know, economy and security are two things that just the average person, regardless of how much you earn, whether you're single, you're married, you've got kids or you don't. I think those are two things that are always on the top of the list. And I think that those are two areas where the, you know, the government can't fix every problem. And I think it's crazy when people expect them to. But I think that when it comes to security, certainly border security um, and general security around the country, especially in larger cities and people actually being feeling safe, then I think when you give people that feeling of safety and general liberty and the economy is controlled and the money supply is controlled, then 
there is going to there's still going to be pain in the short term. I don't believe that's avoidable in any way. Mm. Um, you know, you can't have such harsh policies for such a long period of time and shut down the economy for such a period of time and not bear the brunt of that. So that's going to play out how it's going to play out, sadly, not just in the UK, but in many nations. Um, but I think that's where the focus needs to be. Yeah, and Emma, there's a couple of points that I want to just extract from what Zuby said there. So one of them is about um, government can't fix everything and people uh, have got into the situation where they expect it to. For me, something very strange happened throughout that COVID period where the, the, the leaders of this country, and not just this country, by the way, far beyond, they kind of put themselves into this role where the power that they were exerting over us was almost like you can leave your house, you can't leave your house, your kids can go to school, they can't go to school, you can look at a book in a supermarket, oh no you can't, you can only look at that aisle in the supermarket. And to me, there's been this very bizarre shift now of what people think that the government should do and how much the government should help with their lives. And I worry a little bit when we go into this new chapter, have we got a little bit addicted to suckling the teat of, of government <laughs> goodness? Did uh, I just say that sentence out loud? I did. It I'm sounded better did in my head. Yes. I've got all these images of people suckling the teats of... Anyway. But, I mean, surely that's the last item, right? Yes, yes, we'll move on to that. And it is only six o'clock indeed. But do you get the point that I'm trying I to do. make? I do. I understand the point you're making. I think it's, it's really interesting. I think for the first time in quite a long time, we're actually having a discussion and a real difference between Labour and the Conservatives about the role of the state. Um, and I think that both are in some ways offering big state solutions, but in, with different priorities within that. So it's been a Conservative government for 12 years. So all of the things that you're talking about have been a Conservative government with a very strong overarching, overweening, some would say, state. I think there's absolutely questions to be asked about government, what feels like heavy-handed government intervention into our lives and the difference between what that would be and a safety net that allows us all to live with a certain sense of freedom that we can then go on and grow and be entrepreneurial without the government making every decision for us. So I think that the boundaries of where those, that sit feels to me like a conversation we're actually having for the first time in a, really since the 1970s or 80s about what the actual role of the state is and should be. And I think that there's sometimes a mistake on the right where it just says no state at all, nothing at all, no intervention. And then on the left where it says the state should do absolutely everything and must control every aspect of our lives. What, where I think that there's a sensible compromise to be made between all of us is on what a good state should and could feel like and how a state can lift us up without feeling like we're oppressed, but how it makes sure that we don't hit a point where we cannot... Um, take part in economic activity because we're simply too far down. Yeah, and do you think... Because I just... I don't know if we've just gone too far down this kind of rabbit hole of there's a problem, oh, here's the government checkbook to fix it. There's another problem, there's the government checkbook to fix it. Because I believe in the welfare state for the, those that really do uh, need it, those people, for example, if you physically can't go to work, etc. I believe absolutely that you should be supported. Mm -hmm. um, 
And to some extent, when there's, you know, activities and events that are outside of people's control, so now you've got uh, the situation with the energy prices uh, because of Ukraine at this moment in time. So I think there's some elements uh, where you do need a government. But on the whole, I personally would like the government to just butt out of my life. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very much, much with you there, Michelle, as anyone who knows my views knows. I mean... You know, I'm not opposed to having some semblance of a safety net, but it should be a safety net. It shouldn't be a hammock, right? It shouldn't be a place where people can just lie and stay forever. It's supposed to be something that's temporary and specific and to help certain people in certain things. But in terms of the overarching conversation, I, I completely, uh, number one, I totally agree that it's good that this conversation is being had because I think what the role of the government is, what the role of the state is, is a huge conversation. And I think people oftentimes, because we don't have these conversations enough or at a young enough age, I think people just start viewing the government as their daddy and as their mummy. And I think we really, really saw this, not again, not just in the UK, but globally across the last few years, literally saying, you can't be out past this time. You cannot go outside. You can only hang out with this many friends. You can do this, you do this, stand here, walk in this direction, so on and so forth. So. Inadvertently, people have been trained to accept that more and more and accept this nanny state. And I think that's a massive concern and consideration. I think it's very important that people are reminded that on the individual level, the family level, the community level, that's where the prosperity is going to happen. The government can only do so much. One of the best things the government can do is get out of your way. As I said, provide a level of economic and physical security so people don't need to worry about walking down the street and getting mugged or being attacked and so on and so forth, and not having a money supply that's going out of control, which is just jacking up the price of goods and pressing down wages all the time. Because people need to remember, nothing, nothing is free, right? Every time a bill is passed and it costs one billion, two billion, five billion, that money is coming from somewhere. Either you're borrowing from the future generations and creating more debt, which needs to be paid back, or you are taking it from the people who are existing right now or some combination of them most of the time. And there is always a consequence to that. Yeah, and um, speaking about politics more generally, there are some issues, Emma, that I would actually like to be taken out of almost the political arena because I think they're, they're too big for politics. So we talk about energy, for example. I think that the energy strategy, it's too important, it's too long-term to be dictated by potential five-year political windows. And I would like things like that. I'd probably take the NHS, I'd probably take energy. I might even take education. I mean, I'm sitting here now thinking, what would I leave them with? I don't know. <laughs> but I would probably take that out and go, you know what? These things, they're so big, so important, so long-term, that it shouldn't matter who the prime minister of the day is. Let's come together collectively, bring all the top people together, create a strategy, and agree that unless something goes monumentally wrong or different or whatever, but this is the long-term plan. And whoever the, the prime minister of the day is, Keep your nose out of it, because that's outside of your remit. I mean, I think um, I think it was Winston Churchill, although this may be apocryphal, who said democracy is the worst system except for all the other ones. Um, and democracy is not perfect. And you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with the problem, which is that in order for democracy to exist, we have to keep re-electing people. In order to keep being re-elected, people have short-term focus. Mm. They can't do long-term planning. I mean, the joke that was going around a couple of weeks ago was that video of Nick Clegg saying, well, of course we're not going to build nuclear power uh, reactors. They wouldn't go online until 2022. Here we are. 
we haven't got the nuclear power we need. Mm. Um, and that is the absolute problem with democracy has to be a negotiation between the long term needs. And we have to find your ways of putting uh, cathedral thinking, as it's called, thinking beyond your lifetime into uh, a framework that allows people to feel that they've got that democratic choice also involved. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a sense maybe that there has to be some things that are decided um, that, that have a long-term decision framework and some things that are then about managing that long-term decision framework and that's where we then leave the, the politicians who have that short-termist approach to it. Um, indeed. Tell me your thoughts on all of this, by the way, because, you know, we have had a big moment of change uh, in this country. And I think when things change, it presents opportunity because then you can sit there and go, right, this next chapter, this next page, what do we want on it? What do we want to... Uh, uh, to create. So tell me, what do you want? You've Liz Truss, your new or our new leader. Where do you think her areas of focus should be? What do you think to my um, idea in terms of stripping some of the uh, policies out of your day-to-day -day, um, government and almost having them sitting on the top? I think it's quite a good idea, actually. I should charge my fees out, shouldn't I? Consultancy <laughs> rates. Uh, I tell you, by you the way... don't make very much, trust me. <laughs> well, I tell you, everyone, uh, all my viewers, I was saying to you, because obviously, of course, we've dedicated um, the last kind of 10 days or so to the passing of the Queen. Uh, and a few people were writing in and saying, what about the other news? And I was saying to those viewers... You know what? Enjoy the break from it, because I assure you, um, the things like the extended waiting list for the NHS, the cost of living crisis, the problems in society, they went nowhere. They're still there, getting worse uh, in some cases, if you ask me. So anyway, I'm asking you tonight, what should the future priorities look like? Get in touch and tell me. GBviews at gbnews.uk is my email address. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company until 7 o'clock this evening. I've got my panel, the rapper and podcaster, Zuby, and the political consultant, Emma Burnell. Uh, you guys have been getting in touch. I'm asking you, what do you want um, our, our new leaders to focus on? Where are your priority areas? Uh, so get in touch with me. Let me know your thoughts on that. I'll read some of them out before the end of the programme. GBviews at gbnews.uk is my email address. Now... Um, lots has been going on, I have to say, in this country over the last few days. I can't squeeze it all in tonight's programme, so tomorrow I want to pick up on things like what's happening in Leicester, for example. But tonight, uh, I'm going to keep the focus here in London because uh, hundreds and hundreds of people have turned out uh, in London this week to protest against the shooting of an unarmed black man by Met police officers. Chris Calvert was driving a car uh, that was known to have been used in a firearms incident. Uh, now, I have to say, the shooting Shooting is the subject of an investigation which clearly remains ongoing, but it has kind of brought up again uh, the conversations around trust in the police, particularly, uh, Zuby, when it comes to what some, some people are saying, I've seen it today, that the, the trust, the relations between certain members of the black community and the police are irreparably damaged. Where do you stand on it all? I firstly, I would reject that completely that it's irreversibly or irreparably damaged. Saying that is, it's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. It's not true. 
and it's not helpful. How can we solve any problem if we say that it's unsolvable? But do you think the police, are, what's, the, what's the saying we use now, um, institutionally racist? Again, it's not a useful term. People like to throw these terms, but to me it's very intellectually lazy. It's very easy to just say, yep, institutional racism, yep, systemic racism, yep, structural racism. You can't, you can't solve for that. It's this sort of catch-all term, which just means that anytime anything happens, you can just say it. I mean, one thing that was one thing that struck me actually during the intro is I think it's so interesting that with this situation, for example, that the explicit framing of race is even being brought in when we do not know if that was even a factor, mm. right? So people are now focusing on race. This exact same thing happens in the U.S., and I would like the U.K. ideally not not to copy this. The same thing happened in the George Floyd situation. To this day, even though that Derek Chauvin, the man who killed him, is now in prison, we we don't know if there was a racial component to it. There's still there's still no evidence of that. That wasn't even brought up in the trial, and so on. But people are being trained by the media and the authorities and society to frame everything in this black and white racial concept. Why? And, I think, well, it depends on the people pushing it. You know, I think that there are avenues, there are individuals who profit a lot, of, who profit a lot from it. There's a gigantic racial grievance industry. It's a multi, multi-billion dollar, billion, I don't know how, I don't know if it's, uh, it's definitely worth more in the US than it is in the UK. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, very, it's a very useful political weapon and a lot of money is made from it. And there are people who are professional race grifters who just go and they like to stir the pot and they like to make it seem that things are racial when they're not, and they just like to sow this discord and disharmony. So I think there are certain things we can, everyone can always agree on. I think everybody, no matter where you sit politically, no matter what color you are, nobody would like to see more police brutality or more people getting killed by police in unjust circumstances. Everybody agrees with that concept, right? Everyone would like to have the police functioning and operating better. So I think if the conversation can be focused on that rather than getting caught up in race and in slogans and in Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter and this and this and just all this divisive nonsense that keeps people at each other's throat, then we can, we can, we can find the truth. I mean, the investigation hasn't happened yet. Is it possible that there's a racial component in this particular individual case? It's possible. I don't know, and I can speak about this myself because. Well, hang on, you've okay. got an example, okay, and I ahead, want you ahead, to. I want to listen to your example, okay, okay. but I just want to bring Emma in a second. Emma, where do you stand on some of this? I think it's uh, really interesting. I kind of agree with Zuby. Um, I think there's an academic world of work to be done about structure mm. um, and things like. But I think that. Too much of the time at the moment, and I'm possibly the worst person sort of, you know, to talk about this, but it feels like that is brought into the everyday conversation in a way that takes us away from pragmatic steps and towards simply um, taking things, everything is, is impossible. Uh, there's this impossibilism mm -hmm. that keeps coming up that means that a small step is seen as not enough, whereas a small step seems to me just to be going in the right direction. I'm clearly not a young black man, but I am from a blended family. My brother is black. And I have seen growing up that we were treated differently in some ways throughout our, particularly when we were younger. And that's always treated stayed with how? me. Um, Michael would be stopped walking down the street and I wouldn't. 
Um, I, uh, as a, and still do, from, from 17 to 47, walk the streets at 2am with my headphones on singing loudly. I sing loudly because my theory is that if I'm the nut and the nutters won't come at me. <laughs> That's, I like that theory, I might adopt it. Yeah. So let us let me just pick up on what Emma's saying there mm -hmm. about the stop and search thing. So what she's saying is that, um, you know, white, middle-aged, no offence, but no, white, no, middle-aged woman <laughs> walking the street, not getting stop and search, a young black man is. Mm -hmm. I don't think middle-aged and old black people are stopped often either, especially women. But then see, because I, I have a little, we often hear about young uh, black males being disproportionately stopped and searched. And I am then trying to find data on who is doing the carrying of the knives or the stabbing of people or whatever it is that they're stopping and searching for. Because if, for example, it was disproportionately young black men doing that activity or whatever that activity was, I would want that demographic to be disproportionately this is, stopped and, and, and this is why it's an impossible conversation, right? It's a, it's a minefield because you are not supposed to acknowledge certain facts and realities and statistics and something like stop and search stop and frisk is a very it's a very controversial policy it's understandable where it comes from and oftentimes what people consider racism or other isms or phobias some people might not like me saying this but oftentimes it's based off pattern recognition right so let's even move away from the racial issue we know that men commit far more violent crime than women do. If you just look through this through a purely gender lens, you're going to find, oh wow, probably 90% of people getting stopped and frisked, or 90%, right? It's vast majority of police interactions, altercations, people getting hurt, primarily male, like very, very overwhelmingly. Um, so I think it's interesting even that people apply the racial lens, but they don't look at the much bigger one, the much more disproportionate one. But that's understandable because men commit more crime. Does that mean most men are criminals? Absolutely not. Most mm. men are law-abiding. Most people are law-abiding. Um, but it's just one of those very messy conversations where in this era, especially of political correctness, it's, you know, someone just wants to jump in and, yep, yep, there we go, you're racist, you're this, you're that. And it just very quickly descends into this mess. So I think if we can take the conversation a level higher and go to the things where everybody agrees, right? So some people might, you ask people, do you think the police are institutionally racist? Some people might say yes, some people might say no. Regardless of what they say, if you ask people, would you, would you like the police, would you like more people? getting hurt and killed by the police in unjust circumstances or less. Every, everyone agrees less. So whether that the final solution comes to some type of police training or some education or a combination of things, also community outreach. It's absolutely true that there are many, many communities, not just, not just black ones, but there are communities and areas where there is a distrust between the police and the people who are being policed in that area. Sometimes those grievances are very valid and they're based on incidents and things that have happened and it's understandable and it's very emotionally charged. But I think that if we have these conversations honestly and openly and if it's happening within those communities and you're actually having the police be a part of the community and they're gonna have their distrust, there's the distrust coming to the other side. But I think if we want these things to be functional and cohesive, then those conversations need to be allowed to happen and people need to see each other as, as human beings. Because the flip side of this is what, what you end up with uh, in the States, for example, where they have the ACAB, all cops are bad, right? So a cop does one bad thing and suddenly all cops are bad. 
Well, I, I actually thought that the B word yes, in so did I. was something a bit worse than the, the, the bad word. Maybe that's just my corrupt mind. But I hear those slogans and I think they are an absolute disgrace. Yeah. And I seem to feel that they are uh, daubed more and more now in this. I never used to see those no. um, abbreviations. And now I feel like I see them frequently in London. And I think it's a dis I think it's disgusting. It's also it's also it's just a very inaccurate. I think oftentimes in the UK, people... It's also a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Yes. If you tell people, um, as young people thinking about their up for forthcoming career, all cops are bad. bad. Um, why would someone want to go and be a policeman? But actually, it's the people who would be put off by that slogan who are exactly the people you might want to recruit into mm. the police so that they can do exactly the kind of community work that you were talking about. Yes. And so what you don't want to do is get into a position where you put off the people who would help the police to become the kind of police force that everyone should be agreeing mm. we want from joining the police. <laughs> yes, and I think it's important to remember in all directions, in all angles, most people are decent and strive to be good and are law abiding and are not violent and are not criminals and so on. It doesn't matter the demographic of the group. This includes police, most police officers. I'm not gonna make myself popular with some people saying this. Most police officers are decent people who but are just trying me, to I do need a to, decent I job. I need to just unpick that. Okay. Why would someone have a problem with you saying that most police officers are because, decent? Because surely be that is just a fact. Yes, it's, it's a fact, but we live in this era where certain facts are not meant to be said. If you're a certain person or of a certain demographic, right? I'm a young black male, I'm supposed to hate the police. I've been arrested at mistaken identity at gunpoint by the police. I'm supposed to come out of that with this rage and this hatred of the police and so on, right? Assuming that it was based on this and this and this and make myself the victim. But I always focus on what I think is helpful. What I, what, what I think is helpful, what I think is moving conversations forward because if you would like to see things get better in society and you genuinely, if you genuinely believe the statement that black lives matter, you genuinely believe the statement that all lives matter, you genuinely care about people, you don't want, you don't want brutality happening. You don't want murders. You don't want the police beating anyone up or killing someone who's not a threat or any of that. You don't want violence within communities, between groups. You, you, you don't want that. So my focus is always not on what sounds good or what's gonna just make a sound bite, but on what I think is actually pragmatic, removing the emotions. I can understand people getting emotionally charged about certain things, but once people just start fighting and yelling at each other and calling each other names, you can't have any solutions that just makes things get worse. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it's also worth remembering that police people are human. Yes. Which means that they also have faults and sometimes they are bad and sometimes they are good. Mm -hmm. And we, they're also likely, like all of us, no more or no less susceptible to running in crowds. So when bad behaviour starts being modelled um, and becoming the norm, mm -hmm. that will happen, particularly if you work under a high stress uh, environment where mm -hmm. letting off steam becomes bad behaviour because that's what's modelled. So I think we just need to remember that human element of yes. all all of this, the human element of the people who have felt victimised by the police, the human element of the people who are committing crimes, the human element of the police, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And I just think if we remember that part of it, we'll be much better, as you say, at, at taking those steps towards a, just towards a more human understanding. Mm. And I think also one, one more thing with these incidents that happen with police in particular is I think it's really important for people to wait 
for facts to come out. Yes. I know, I, again, I'm a human being. I understand the emotional response to just want to jump on something and draw certain conclusions and make assumptions every time one of these incidents happens. And, and, and this is what happens, especially in this age of social media. But again, it's more destructive than it is constructive. And oftentimes you'll be, you'll be completely wrong. Oftentimes you'll be completely wrong. There could be video video that comes out, things that things that come out and it totally changes the perception in the picture. And people also need to remember that the majority of police killings are justified. The majority, right? Sometimes they absolutely get it wrong. There have been some very very horrible and bad cases, but we seem to be living in this time where no matter what it's always, well, depending on someone's view on this, right? You have people who would, you know, back the blue no matter what, but you also have people who have this all cops are bad mentality and no matter what they do. I've seen situations where someone literally is shooting at a police officer and they kill him and people are criticizing the police for shooting back. And that is crazy. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're trained to do. They have, they're supposed to protect their own lives. But I think we can all agree that the training standards should be very high. Yeah. Because with police in particular, it, it, we want to have competent people in every field, but with yeah. police in particular, because they carry, because, well, in the UK, they don't all carry guns, but because they, they carry weapons, they have the right to arrest people, they have the ability to potentially use lethal force, you, we, 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 you can't be having bad apples running around with a gun and a badge. That's a big problem. They have authority. Yes. Competent authority is essential, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would not be a police officer for love nor money. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And, and the, the, the bad um, rap that police officers get, some of it justified, by the way. I'm not trying to suggest mm -hmm. um, that you can't criticise the police, but... It does seem to be absolutely relentless. And you see videos um, of the police and actually they run into danger. They, they do put themselves in situations where most people wouldn't, wouldn't have the kahunas, if you like, to, mm -hmm. to do that. And I do just think uh, it was nice, actually, during the last few days to see the police uh, getting applauded uh, in some cases, uh, feeling appreciated because sometimes I think the default position is to go on to the attack, like you say, without even considering um, any of the kind of details around it. But let me know your thoughts on some of that. Um, Steve says, why, what is this sentence around black community? Aren't we all British? What do you say to that briefly? I agree with him. You know, one of the best things about, one of the things I like, I love the UK and I love the USA. One of my favorite things about the UK compared to the US is that we don't need a prefix on British. Mm -hmm. You don't need to go around calling people white British, black British, Jewish British. It's not, I think Americans use that prefix way too much and they're always talking about the black community and the African American community and the Latino I'm like, You're, you guys are all American. Yes, people have different heritage, people have different ethnicity and so on. But I think that, again, if we can just go up that one level and talk about people as being British rather than always wanting to stick a label on there, then I think we can have better conversations. There you go. And better conversations is something I am passionate about having on Jubes and Co. I always say if people could just debate things better, uh, society would be a much happier place, that is for sure.
Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company through until 7 o'clock this evening. We've got my panel, uh, the rapper and podcaster Zuby and the political consultant Emma Burnell. I was pondering earlier on, by the way, about um, what do you want the priorities of the government to be? Um, lots of mixed, mixed responses, actually. Cost of living, of course, is the big one, the energy costs. Uh, lots of you, though, saying, why is there not more focus on domestic issues, issues in this country uh, why is there so much focus on everywhere else the sense seems to be coming Robert says I want a, pos a positive mental attitude uh, focus going forward it always works for him he says he would like to see that rolled out Gloria says Michelle why don't we have a long-term minister to make sure uh, basically to sit on top of all the different parliaments, obviously parliament for five years, you could have someone that sits right across the top. Um, that's not a bad idea. Uh, Anne says, oh, I do like both these guests. What sensible debates. There you go. That's Thank a nice you, compliment for your birth. Uh, right, men, listen up. This one is for you. Uh, for a long time, let's be honest, uh, when it comes to contraception, it's been at the hands of women. Well, good news for you, uh, men, because now there's an option if you want it. And I wonder how many of you do want it because according to my inbox, the answer is not many. But anyway, uh, a new contraceptive jab could soon be on the market. Um, would you take it? Let's cut straight to the chase, Subi. Absolutely not. Why not? I'm not a guinea pig. So, but okay, so, so you wouldn't take it because of the newness of it. And I want to have lots of kids. Yes, but you can reverse it. It's not like you don't take How this How do I injection. know? I don't, I don't trust them. I let, let, it, let it run for a couple decades and then... But theoretically, like, let, theoretically. let's say it's been tested for 20 <laughs> years. Theoretically, okay. in the queue, right? So what, what, what do you think to this? I mean, I think the more things you can do to make sure that children are planned and loved, the better. Mm -hmm. um, so the widest available availability of contraceptive, the better. Um, as somebody, single woman, who enjoys herself as often as she can. Oh, um, hang about. <laughs> What's going on here, everyone? I'm got sorry, a, Anne, I've let you down. Are you a single man, Zuby? No comment. Oh, hey, this is interesting. Frankly, I'm going to keep it in my hands. All right. Um, I will be continuing to use as much contraceptive protection as I can in, in the scenarios in which I may find myself. Yeah, I wouldn't trust a bloke. No, exactly. <laughs> no offence, no offence, Zuby. But it, surely, as a man, because, you know, as a man, you are in a situation where a woman could say to you, I've got protection, mm -hmm. on you go, it's tea time, so your imagination has to step up to the plate on this one, I'm afraid, guys. Uh, off you go. And then you find out that actually the lady wasn't using mm -hmm. contraception and then you could find yourself in a situation mm -hmm. where you're now a dad. Yeah. Someone that perhaps you don't know, didn't want to parent with. This I, is going to empower you. I, 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 I control myself in that regard, so I, I wouldn't worry about that. But, but, um, okay, but a lot of them don't. <laughs> a lot I of mean, them don't. I mean, look, there's something called condoms as well. We, we, well, indeed, we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that those using. We shouldn't forget that those exist. <laughs> um, People sitting at home eating the tea right now. <laughs> going, what is what's this? It's a shifting conversation. Menu, yeah. I did. I put it on the menu because I actually found it quite interesting because yeah. if you look, the number of lone parent families in this country, uh, in 2021, there's about 3 million lone parent families. And of course... Lone parent? What's, sorry, what's a lone parent? Well, like a single parent family. Oh. So no one really kind of 
you know, when you have a family with someone, when you have children with someone, you hope that it will last forever. That is the ideal scenario. But often there are situations uh, where there'll be men out there watching this perhaps who someone has had a child who told them that they was on contraception, they wasn't, and then they became a father with no input. Well, well I, mean, they had input. I know, I know, I'm just remembering it is tea time, but you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean. And then I, I kind of look at this and I think, well, this is the new um, balancing up of society, it empowers mm. men. I think it depends on, look, people are always going to have a skepticism with a new pharmaceutical, right? The, the, just the word jab is gonna like trigger some people, right? The concept of there being this brand new technology, I don't, has it, to what degree has it been tested on people? For how long for, what are the long terms and so on. So that's always going to make people apprehensive. We'll see, we'll see how this plays out. I mean, I'm a firm believer in belt and braces. So I have an implant. It actually shows up under UV lights, which is so cyber and cool when I'm out clubbing. Uh, but you will also, that will stop me getting pregnant. It won't stop me getting other things that we need to consider. And mm. that, I think, is an important part of this. Mm. You know, um, there are other elements to consider, which is sexual health. What I actually thought was more interesting about that article, funnily enough, was that they said that it can um, block I HIV. Yes, potentially. I mean, potentially that could be that could a, be a huge more... That life changer, yeah. Yeah, that technology could be a more groundbreaking the technology, the technology that we're discussing, uh, by the way, gents, um, it has been patented in India, China, Bangladesh, and the US. Uh, phase three clinical trials underway in India, but were slurred by insufficient volunteers. Uh, apparently, <laughs> the way this all works is injecting a gel cocktail into the tubes where the sperm pass on their way. Um, it lasts 10 years, but it can be uh, reversed. And I found the way that they reversed it quite interesting. It was with baking soda, a quick injection of baking soda and water will flush out the gel. Side effects apparently are minimal. Isn't that how you unblock your drains? <laughs> so baking soda and, and water, I don't know. Is that how, how you unblock your drains? I believe so. Or is that how you unblock your tubes? If you <laughs> they said, how they said, have they made any claims about what the efficacy of it is? I mean, yeah, do we have stats? I don't, I don't actually think we do yet. Uh, I think we're working on it. I have to say, though, the, um, there's not a big bunch of volunteers uh, if my inbox is anything to go for and Zuby <laughs> is anything to go for. And I'm quite surprised by that. I thought that men might be jumping at the opportunity to empower themselves to take a little bit more control. Um, but if you are one of those people, you're not watching Jubes and Co right now as we speak. In fact, actually, you've probably got very tight leg crossings going on and changing channels and mutterings and all the rest of it. It's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Uh, but the short version is, no, most of you um, will not be getting involved in that vaccination or, well, it's not vaccination, it's an injection anytime soon. Uh, lots of conversation as well coming in about that conversation we've just been having about the black um, uh, relations with uh, the police. Lots of people commending uh, what you're saying, asking me to pat you on the back. I've only got short arms. <laughs> I can't pat him on the back, ladies and gentlemen. He's too far away. Uh, Alison has pointed out that uh, it's baking soda and white vinegar 
Ah, oh, thank you, Alison. Baking so That would be, yeah, I mean, you don't want to, if you're injecting yourself with something, you don't want to get your uh, vinegars and your waters and all the rest of it mixed up, do you? I would not uh, recommend that. I'm also assuming that based on how it works, it has to be injected directly at location. So maybe Ooh, that's ouch. one reason. That that's might be why it's probably a lot of people off. Oh, ouchie. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll leave you all to, uh, I'll leave you all to eat your tea and uh, ponder that topic. Me there too, bed. Yes, that's a nice one for you to, uh, that's a nice one to send you off into your evening. And it's a nice throw over the fence there to Nigel Farage, who is probably going to be wondering what on earth uh, I'm talking about. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.